Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 15 of The Jungle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss The Jungle by Upton Sinclair Chapter 15 the beginning of these perplexing things was in the summer, and each time Ona would promise him with terror in her voice that it would not happen again, but in vain. Each crisis would leave Jurgis more and more frightened, more disposed to distrust Elzbieta's consolations, and to believe that there was some terrible thing about all this that he was not allowed to know. Once or twice in these outbreaks he caught Ona's eye, and it seemed to him like the eye of a hunted animal. There were broken phrases of anguish and despair now and then, amid her frantic weeping. It was only because he was so numb and beaten himself that Jurgis did not worry more about this. But he never thought of it, except when he was dragged to it. He lived like a dumb beast of burden, knowing only the moment in which he was. The winter was coming on again, more menacing and cruel than ever. It was October, and the holiday rush had begun. It was necessary for the packing machines to grind till late at night to provide food that would be eaten at Christmas breakfast, and Maria and Elzbeta and Ona as part of the machine began working fifteen or sixteen hours a day. There was no choice about this. Whatever work there was to be done, they had to do, if they wished to keep their places. Besides that, it added another pittance to their incomes. So they staggered on with the awful load. They would start work every morning at seven, and eat their dinners at noon, and then work until ten or eleven at night without another mouthful of food. Jurgis wanted to wait for them to help them home at night, but they would not think of this. The fertilizer mill was not running overtime, and there was no place for him to wait save in a saloon. Each would stagger out into the darkness and make her way to the corner where they met, or, if the others had already gone, would get into a car and begin a painful struggle to keep awake. When they got home they were always too tired either to eat or to undress. They would crawl into bed with their shoes on and lie like logs. If they should fail they would certainly be lost. If they held out they might have enough coal for the winter. A day or two before Thanksgiving Day there came a snowstorm. It began in the afternoon, and by evening two inches had fallen. Jurgis tried to wait for the women, but went into a saloon to get warm and took two drinks, and came out and ran home to escape from the demon. There he lay down to wait for them, and instantly fell asleep. When he opened his eyes again he was in the midst of a nightmare, 
and found Elzbieta shaking him and crying out. At first he could not realize what she was saying. Ona had not come home. "'What time was it?' he asked. "'It was morning. Time to be up.' Ona had not been home that night, and it was bitter cold and a foot of snow on the ground. Jurgis sat up with a start. Maria was crying with fright, and the children were wailing in sympathy, little Stanislavus in addition, because the terror of the snow was upon him. Jurgis had nothing to put on but his shoes and his coat, and in half a minute he was out of the door. Then, however, he realized that there was no need of haste, that he had no idea where to go. It was still dark as midnight, and the thick snowflakes were sifting down. Everything was so silent that he could hear the rustle of them as they fell. In the few seconds that he stood there hesitating, he was covered white. He set off at a run for the yards, stopping by the way to inquire in the saloons that were open. Ona might have been overcome on the way, or else she might have met with an accident in the machines. When he got to the place where she worked he inquired of one of the watchmen. There had not been any accident, so far as the man had heard. At the time office, which he found already open, the clerk told him that Ona's check had been turned in the night before, showing that she had left her work. After that there was nothing for him to do but wait, pacing back and forth in the snow, meantime to keep from freezing. Already the yards were full of activity. Cattle were being unloaded from the cars in the distance, and across the way the beef-luggers were toiling in the darkness, carrying two-hundred-pound quarters of bullocks into the refrigerator cars. Before the first streaks of daylight there came the crowding throngs of workingmen, shivering and swinging their dinner-pails as they hurried by. Jurgis took up his stand by the time-office window, where alone there was light enough for him to see. The snow fell so quick that it was only by peering closely that he could make sure that Ona did not pass him. Seven o'clock came, the hour when the great packing machine began to move. Jurgis ought to have been at his place in the fertilizer mill, but instead he was waiting, in an agony of fear, for Ona. It was fifteen minutes after the hour when he saw a form emerge from the snow-mist, and sprang toward it with a cry. It was she, running swiftly. As she saw him she staggered forward and half fell into his outstretched arms. "'What has been the matter?' he cried anxiously. "'Where have you been?' It was several seconds before she could get breath to answer him. "'I couldn't get home,' she exclaimed. "'The snow! The cars had stopped!' "'But where were you then?' he demanded. "'I had to go home with a friend,' she panted. "'With Yadviga.' Jurgis drew a deep breath. Then he noticed that she was sobbing and trembling, as if in one of those nervous crises that he dreaded so. "'But what's the matter?' he cried. "'What has happened?' "'Oh, Jurgis, I was so frightened,' she said, clinging to him wildly. "'I have been so worried.' They were near the time-station window, and people were staring at them. Jurgis led her away. "'How do you mean?' he asked, in perplexity. "'I was afraid. I was just afraid,' sobbed Ona. "'I knew you wouldn't know where I was, and I didn't know what you might do. I tried to get home, but I was so tired. 
Oh, Jurgis, Jurgis. He was so glad to get her back that he could not think clearly about anything else. It did not seem strange to him that she should be so very much upset. All her fright and incoherent protestations did not matter since he had her back. He let her cry away her tears, and then, because it was nearly eight o'clock, and they would lose another hour if they delayed, he left her at the packing-house door with her ghastly white face and her haunted eyes of terror. There was another brief interval. Christmas was almost come, and because the snow still held and the searching cold, morning after morning Jurgis had carried his wife to her post, staggering with her through the darkness, until at last, one night, came the end. It lacked but three days of the holidays. About midnight Maria and Elzbieta came home, exclaiming in alarm when they found that Ona had not come. The two had agreed to meet her, and, after waiting, had gone to the room where she worked, only to find that the ham-wrapping girls had quit work an hour before and left. There was no snow that night, nor was it especially cold, and still Ona had not come. Something more serious must be wrong this time. They aroused Jurgis, and he sat up and listened crossly to the story. She must have gone home again with Jadwiga, he said. Jadwiga lived only two blocks from the yards, and perhaps she had been tired. Nothing could have happened to her, and even if there had, there was nothing could be done about it until morning. Jurgis turned over in his bed and was snoring again before the two had closed the door. In the morning, however, he was up and out nearly an hour before the usual time. Jadwiga Marcinkus lived on the other side of the yards, beyond Halstead Street, with her mother and sisters in a single basement room, for Mikolas had recently lost one hand from blood poisoning, and their marriage had been put off forever. The door of the room was in the rear, reached by a narrow court, and Jurgis saw a light in the window and heard something frying as he passed. He knocked half expecting that Ona would answer. Instead there was one of Jadwiga's little sisters, who gazed at him through a crack in the door. "'Where's Ona?' he demanded, and the child looked at him in perplexity. "'Ona?' she said. "'Yes,' said Jurgis. "'Isn't she here?' "'No,' said the child, and Jurgis gave a start. A moment later came Jadwiga, peering over the child's head. When she saw who it was she slid around out of sight, for she was not quite dressed. Jurgis must excuse her,' she began. Her mother was very ill. "'Ona isn't here?' Jurgis demanded, too alarmed to wait for her to finish. "'Why, no,' said Jadwiga. "'What made you think she would be here?' "'Had she said she was coming?' "'No,' he answered. "'But she hasn't come home, and I thought she would be here the same as before.' "'As before?' echoed Jadwiga, in perplexity. "'The time she spent the night here,' said Jurgis. "'There must be some mistake,' she answered quickly. "'Ona has never spent the night here.' He was only half able to realize the words. "'Why, why!' he exclaimed. Two weeks ago, Jadwiga. She told me so the night it snowed, and she could not get home.' 
"'There must be some mistake,' declared the girl again. "'She didn't come here.' He steadied himself by the door-sill, and Yadviga, in her anxiety, for she was fond of Ona, opened the door wide, holding her jacket across her throat. "'Are you sure you didn't misunderstand her?' she cried. "'She must have meant somewhere else.' "'She—' "'She said here,' insisted Jurgis. "'She told me all about you, and how you were, and what you said. Are you sure you haven't forgotten you weren't away?' "'No, no!' she exclaimed, and then came a peevish voice. "'Yadviga, you are giving the baby a cold. Shut the door!' Jurgis stood for half a minute more stammering his perplexity through an eighth of an inch of crack, and then, as there was really nothing more to be said, he excused himself and went away. He walked on half-dazed, without knowing where he went. Ona had deceived him. She had lied to him. And what could that mean? Where had she been? Where was she now? He could hardly grasp the thing much less try to solve it. But a hundred wild surmises came to him. A sense of impending calamity overwhelmed him. Because there was nothing else to do, he went back to the time office to watch again. He waited until nearly an hour after seven, and then went to the room where Ona worked to make inquiries of Ona's forelady. The forelady, he found, had not yet come. All the lines of cars that came from downtown were stalled. There had been an accident in the powerhouse, and no cars had been running since last night. Meantime, however, the ham-wrappers were working away, with someone else in charge of them. The girl who answered Jurgis was busy, and as she talked she looked to see if she were being watched. Then a man came up wheeling a truck. He knew Jurgis for Ona's husband and was curious about the mystery. "'Maybe the cars had something to do with it,' he suggested. "'Maybe she had gone downtown.' "'No,' said Jorgis. "'She never went downtown.' "'Perhaps not,' said the man. Jorgis thought he saw him exchange a swift glance with the girl as he spoke, and he demanded quickly, "'What do you know about it?' But the man had seen that the boss was watching him. He started on again, pushing his truck. I don't know anything about it, he said, over his shoulder. How should I know where your wife goes? Then Jurgis went out again, and paced up and down before the building. All the morning he stayed there, with no thought of his work. About noon he went to the police station to make inquiries, and then came back again for another anxious vigil. Finally, toward the middle of the afternoon, he set out for home once more. He was walking out Ashland Avenue. The streetcars had begun running again, and several passed him, packed to the steps with people. The sight of them set Jurgis to thinking again of the man's sarcastic remark, and half involuntarily he found himself watching the cars, with the result that he gave a sudden startled exclamation and stopped short in his tracks. Then he broke into a run. For a whole block he tore after the car, only a little ways behind. That rusty black hat with the drooping red flower. It might not be Ona's, but there was very little likelihood of it. He would know for certain very soon, 
for she would get out two blocks ahead. He slowed down and let the car go on. She got out, and as soon as she was out of sight on the side street Jurgis broke into a run. Suspicion was rife in him now, and he was not ashamed to shadow her. He saw her turn the corner near their home, and then he ran again, and saw her as she went up the porch steps of the house. After that he turned back, and for five minutes paced up and down, his hands clenched tightly and his lips set, his mind in a turmoil. Then he went home and entered. As he opened the door he saw Elspita, who had also been looking for Ona, and had come home again. She was now on tiptoe, and had a finger on her lips. Jurgis waited until she was close to him. "'Don't make any noise,' she whispered hurriedly. "'What's the matter?' he asked. "'Ona is asleep,' she panted. "'She's been very ill. I'm afraid her mind's been wandering, Jurgis. She was lost on the street all night, and I've only just succeeded in getting her quiet.' "'When did she come in?' he asked. "'Soon after you left this morning,' said Elzbieta. "'And has she been out since?' "'No, of course not. She's so weak, Jurgis. She—' And he set his teeth hard together. "'You are lying to me,' he said. Elzbieta started and turned pale. "'Why?' she gasped. "'What do you mean?' But Jurgis did not answer. He pushed her aside and strode to the bedroom door and opened it. Ona was sitting on the bed. She turned a startled look upon him as he entered. He closed the door in Elzbieta's face and went towards his wife. "'Where have you been?' he demanded. She had her hands clasped tightly in her lap, and he saw that her face was as white as paper and drawn with pain. She gasped once or twice as she tried to answer him, and then began, speaking low and swiftly. Jurgis, I... I think I have been out of my mind. I started to come home last night, and I could not find the way. I walked. I walked all night, I think, and... and I only got home this morning. You needed a rest, he said in a hard tone. Why did you go out again? He was looking her fairly in the face and he could read the sudden fear and wild uncertainty that leaped into her eyes. "'I... I had to go to... to the store,' she gasped, almost in a whisper. "'I had to go...' "'You are lying to me,' said Jurgis. Then he clenched his fist and took a step toward her. "'Why do you lie to me?' he cried fiercely. "'What are you doing that you have to lie to me?' Jurgis, she exclaimed, staring up in fright. "'Oh, Jurgis, how can you?' "'You have lied to me, I say,' he cried. "'You told me you had been to Jadwiga's house that other night, and you hadn't. You had been where you were last night, somewheres downtown, for I saw you get off the car. Where were you?' It was as if he had struck a knife into her. She seemed to go all to pieces. For half a second she stood, reeling and swaying, staring at him with horror in her eyes. Then with a cry of anguish she tottered forward, stretching out her arms to him. But he stepped aside, deliberately, and let her fall. 
she caught herself at the side of the bed, and then sank down, burying her face in her hands and bursting into frantic weeping. Then came one of those hysterical crises that had so often dismayed him. Ona sobbed and wept, her fear and anguish building themselves up into long climaxes. Furious gusts of emotion would come sweeping over her, shaking her as the tempest shakes the trees upon the hills. All her frame would quiver and throb with them. It was as if some dreadful thing rose up within her and took possession of her, torturing her, tearing her. This thing had been wont to set Jurgis quite beside himself. But now he stood with his lips set tightly and his hands clenched. She might weep till she killed herself. But she should not move him this time. Not an inch. Not an inch. Because the sound she made set his blood to running cold and his lips to quivering in spite of himself, he was glad of the diversion when Teta Elzbieta, pale with fright, opened the door and rushed in. Yet he turned upon her with an oath. "'Go out!' he cried. "'Go out!' And then, as she stood hesitating, about to speak, he seized her by the arm and half flung her from the room, slamming the door and barring it with the table. Then he turned again and faced Ona, crying, "'Now answer me!' Yet she did not hear him. She was still in the grip of the fiend. Jurgis could see her outstretched hands shaking and twitching, roaming here and there over the bed at will, like living things. He could see convulsive shudderings start in her body and run through her limbs. She was sobbing and choking. It was as if there were too many sounds for one throat. They came chasing each other like waves upon the sea. Then her voice would begin to rise into screams, louder and louder until it broke in wild, horrible peals of laughter. Jurgis bore it until he could bear it no longer, and then he sprang at her, seizing her by the shoulders and shaking her, shouting into her ear, "'Stop it, I say! Stop it!' She looked up at him, out of her agony. Then she fell forward at his feet. She caught them in her hands in spite of his efforts to step aside, and with her face upon the floor lay writhing. It made a choking in Jurgis' throat to hear her, and he cried again, more savagely than before, "'Stop it, I say!' This time she heeded him, and caught her breath and lay silent, save for the gasping sobs that wrenched all her frame. For a long minute she lay there, perfectly motionless, until a cold fear seized her husband, thinking that she was dying. Suddenly, however, he heard her voice faintly. Jurgis, Jurgis. What is it? he said. He had to bend down to her. She was so weak. She was pleading with him in broken phrases, painfully uttered. Have faith in me. Believe me. Believe what? he cried. Believe that I, that I know best, that I love you, and do not ask me what you did. Oh, Jurgis, please, please, it is for the best. It is... He started to speak again, but she rushed on frantically, heading him off. If you will only do it, 
if you will only, only believe me. It wasn't my fault. I couldn't help it. It will be all right. It is nothing. It is no harm. Oh, Jurgis, please, please. She had hold of him and was trying to raise herself to look at him. He could feel the palsied shaking of her hands and the heaving of the bosom she pressed against him. She managed to catch one of his hands and gripped it convulsively, drawing it to her face and bathing it in her tears. "'Oh, believe me, believe me!' she wailed again, and he shouted in fury, "'I will not!' But still she clung to him, wailing aloud in her despair. "'Oh, Jurgis, think what you are doing! It will ruin us! It will ruin us!' "'Oh, no, you must not do it! No, don't! Don't do it! You must not do it! It will drive me mad! It will kill me! No, no, Jurgis, I am crazy! It is nothing! You do not really need to know! We can be happy! We can love each other just the same! Oh, please, please believe me!' Her words fairly drove him wild. He tore his hands loose and flung her off. "'Answer me!' he cried. God damn it, I say, answer me. She sank down upon the floor, beginning to cry again. It was like listening to the moan of a damned soul, and Jurgis could not stand it. He smote his fist upon the table by his side and shouted again at her, Answer me! She began to scream aloud, her voice like the voice of some wild beast. I, I, I can't, I can't do it. "'Why can't you do it?' he shouted. "'I don't know how.' He sprang and caught her by the arm, lifting her up and glaring into her face. "'Tell me where you were last night,' he panted. "'Quick, out with it!' Then she began to whisper, one word at a time. "'I was in a house downtown.' "'What house? What do you mean?' She tried to hide her eyes away, but he held her. "'Miss Henderson's house,' she gasped. He did not understand at first. "'Miss Henderson's house,' he echoed. And then suddenly, as in an explosion, the horrible truth burst over him, and he reeled and staggered back with a scream. He caught himself against the wall and put his hand to his forehead, staring about him and whispering, Jesus! Jesus! An instant later he leaped at her as she lay groveling at his feet. He seized her by the throat. Tell me, he gasped hoarsely, quick, who took you to that place? She tried to get away, making him furious. He thought it was fear of the pain of his clutch. He did not understand that it was the agony of her shame. Still she answered him. Connor! Connor? he gasped. Who is Connor? The boss, she answered. The man. He tightened his grip in his frenzy, and only when he saw her eyes closing did he realize that he was choking her. Then he relaxed his fingers and crouched, waiting, until she opened her lids again. His breath beat hot into her face. Tell me, he whispered at last. Tell me about it. She lay perfectly motionless and he had to hold his breath to catch her words. "'I did not want to do it,' she said. "'I tried. I tried not to do it. 
I only did it to save us. It was our only chance. Again for a space there was no sound but his panting. Ona's eyes closed, and when she spoke again she did not open them. He told me he would have turned me off. He told me he would. We would all of us lose our places. We could never get anything to do, here, again. He, he meant it, he would have ruined us. Jurgis' arms were shaking so that he could scarcely hold himself up, and lurched forward now and then as he listened. When, when did this begin? he gasped. At the very first, she said. She spoke as if in a trance. It was all, it was their plot, Miss Henderson's plot. She hated me, and he, he wanted me. He used to speak to me, out on the platform. Then he began to, to make love to me. He offered me money. He begged. He said he loved me. Then he threatened me. He knew all about us. He knew we would starve. He knew your boss. He knew Maria's. He would hound us to death, he said. Then he said, if I would, if I, we would all of us be sure of work. Always. Then one day he caught hold of me. He would not let me go. He, he, where was this? In the hallway, at night, after everyone had gone. I could not help it. I thought of you, of the baby, of mother and the children. I was afraid of him, afraid to cry out. A moment ago her face had been ashen gray. Now it was scarlet. She was beginning to breathe hard again. Jurgis made not a sound. That was two months ago. Then he wanted me to come to that house. He wanted me to stay there. He said, all of us, that we would not have to work. He made me come there in the evenings. I told you, you thought I was at the factory. Then, one night it snowed, and I couldn't get back. And last night, the cars were stopped. It was such a little thing to ruin us all. I tried to walk, but I couldn't. I didn't want you to know. It would have... it would have been all right. We could have gone on, just the same. You need never have known about it. He was getting tired of me. He would have let me alone soon. I am going to have a baby. I am getting ugly. He told me that. Twice he told me, last night. He kicked me last night, too. And now you will kill him. You, you will kill him, and we shall die. All this she had said without a quiver. She lay still as death, not an eyelid moving. And Jurgis, too, said not a word. He lifted himself by the bed and stood up. He did not stop for another glance at her, but went to the door and opened it. He did not see Elzbieta crouching terrified in the corner. He went out hatless, leaving the street door open behind him. The instant his feet were on the sidewalk he broke into a run. 
He ran like one possessed, blindly, furiously, looking neither to the right nor left. He was on Ashland Avenue before exhaustion compelled him to slow down, and then, noticing a car, he made a dart for it and drew himself aboard. His eyes were wild and his hair flying, and he was breathing hoarsely like a wounded bull. But the people on the car did not notice this particularly. Perhaps it seemed natural to them that a man who smelled as Jurgis smelled should exhibit an aspect to correspond. They began to give way before him as usual. The conductor took his nickel gingerly with the tips of his fingers, and then left him with the platform to himself. Jurgis did not even notice it. His thoughts were far away. Within his soul it was like a roaring furnace. He stood waiting, waiting, crouching as if for a spring. He had some of his breath back when the car came to the entrance of the yards, and so he leaped off and started again, racing at full speed. People turned and stared at him, but he saw no one. There was the factory, and he bounded through the doorway and down the corridor. He knew the room where Ona worked, and he knew Connor, the boss of the loading gang, outside. He looked for the man as he sprang into the room. The truckmen were hard at work loading the freshly packed boxes and barrels upon the cars. Jurgis shot one swift glance up and down the platform. The man was not on it. But then suddenly he heard a voice in the corridor, and started for it with a bound. In an instant more he confronted the boss. He was a big, red-faced Irishman, coarse-featured and smelling of liquor. He saw Jurgis as he crossed the threshold and turned white. He hesitated one second, as if meaning to run, and in the next his assailant was upon him. He put up his hands to protect his face, but Jurgis, lunging with all the power of his arm and body, struck him fairly between the eyes and knocked him backward. The next moment he was on top of him, burying his fingers in his throat. To Jurgis this man's whole presence reeked of the crime he had committed. The touch of his body was madness to him. It set every nerve of him a-tremble. It aroused all the demon in his soul. It had worked its will upon Ona, this great beast, and now he had it, he had it. It was his turn now. Things swam blood before him, and he screamed aloud in his fury, lifting his victim and smashing his head upon the floor. The place, of course, was in an uproar, women fainting and shrieking, and men rushing in. Jurgis was so bent upon his task that he knew nothing of this, and scarcely realized that people were trying to interfere with him. It was only when half a dozen men had seized him by the legs and shoulders and were pulling at him that he understood that he was losing his prey. In a flash he had bent down and sunk his teeth into the man's cheek, and when they tore him away he was dripping with blood, and little ribbons of skin were hanging in his mouth. They got him down upon the floor, clinging to him by his arms and legs, and still they could hardly hold him. He fought like a tiger, writhing and twisting, half-flinging them off, and starting towards his unconscious enemy. Yet others rushed in until there was a little mountain of twisted limbs and bodies, heaving and tossing, and working its way about the room. In the end, by their sheer weight, they choked the breath out of him, 
and then they carried him to the company police station, where he lay still until they had summoned a patrol wagon to take him away. End of chapter 15 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter 16 of The Jungle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss The Jungle by Upton Sinclair Chapter 16 When Jurgis got up again he went quietly enough. He was exhausted and half-dazed, and besides he saw the blue uniforms of the policemen. He drove in a patrol wagon with half a dozen of them watching him, keeping as far away as possible, however, on account of the fertilizer. Then he stood before the sergeant's desk and gave his name and address, and saw a charge of assault and battery entered against him. On his way to his cell a burly policeman cursed him because he started down the wrong corridor, and then added a kick when he was not quick enough. Nevertheless, Jurgis did not even lift his eyes. He had lived two years and a half in Packingtown, and he knew what the police were. It was as much as a man's very life was worth to anger them, here in their inmost lair. Like as not a dozen would pile on to him at once and pound his face into a pulp. It would be nothing unusual if he got his skull cracked in the melee, in which case they would report that he had been drunk and had fallen down, and there would be no one to know the difference or to care. So a barred door clanged upon Jurgis, and he sat down upon a bench and buried his face in his hands. He was alone. He had the afternoon and all of the night to himself. At first he was like a wild beast that has glutted itself. He was in a dull stupor of satisfaction. He had done up the scoundrel pretty well, not as well as he would have if they had given him a minute more, but pretty well all the same. The ends of his fingers were still tingling from their contact with the fellow's throat. But then, little by little, as his strength came back and his senses cleared, he began to see beyond his momentary gratification. That he had nearly killed the boss would not help Ona. Not the horrors that she had borne, nor the memory that would haunt her all her days. It would not help to feed her and her child. She would certainly lose her place, while he—what was to happen to him God only knew. Half the night he paced the floor, wrestling with this nightmare, and when he was exhausted he lay down, trying to sleep, but finding instead for the first time in his life that his brain was too much for him. In the cell next to him was a drunken wife-beater, and in the one beyond a yelling maniac. At night they opened the station-house to the homeless wanderers who were crowded about the door, shivering in the winter blast, and they thronged into the corridor outside of the cells. Some of them stretched themselves out on the bare stone floor and fell to snoring. Others sat up laughing and talking, cursing and quarreling. 
the air was fetid with their breath, yet in spite of this some of them smelled Jurgis and called down the torrents of hell upon him, while he lay in a far corner of his cell, counting the throbbings of the blood in his forehead. They had brought him his supper, which was duffers and dope, being hunks of dry bread on a tin plate and coffee called dope because it was drugged to keep the prisoners quiet. Jurgis had not known this, or he would have swallowed the stuff in desperation. As it was, every nerve of him was a quiver with shame and rage. Toward morning the place fell silent, and he got up and began to pace his cell, and then within the soul of him there rose up a fiend, red-eyed and cruel, and tore out the strings of his heart. It was not for himself that he suffered, what did a man who worked in Durham's fertilizer mill care about anything that the world might do to him? What was any tyranny of prison compared with the tyranny of the past, of the thing that had happened and could not be recalled, of the memory that could never be effaced? The horror of it drove him mad. He stretched out his arms to heaven, crying out for deliverance from it. And there was no deliverance. There was no power, even in heaven, that could undo the past. It was a ghost that would not drown. It followed him, it seized upon him and beat him to the ground. Ah, if only he could have foreseen it, but then he would have foreseen it if he had not been a fool. He smote his hands upon his forehead, cursing himself because he had ever allowed Ona to work where she had, because he had not stood between her and a fate which everyone knew to be so common. He should have taken her away, even if it were to lie down and die of starvation in the gutters of Chicago's streets. And now, oh, it could not be true, it was too monstrous, too horrible. It was a thing that could not be faced. A new shuddering seized him every time he tried to think of it. No. There was no bearing the load of it, there was no living under it, there would be none for her. He knew that he might pardon her, might plead with her on his knees, but she would never look him in the face again, she would never be his wife again. The shame of it would kill her, there could be no other deliverance, and it was best that she should die. This was simple and clear, and yet with cruel inconsistency Whenever he escaped from this nightmare it was to suffer and cry out at the vision of Ona starving. They had put him in jail, and they would keep him here a long time, years maybe, and Ona would surely not go to work again, broken and crushed as she was. And Elzbieta and Maria too might lose their places, if that hell-fiend Connor chose to set to work to ruin them, they would all be turned out and even if he did not, they could not live. Even if the boys left school again, they could surely not pay all the bills without him and Ona. They had only a few dollars now. They had just paid the rent of the house a week ago, and that after it was two weeks overdue. So it would be due again in a week. They would have no money to pay it then, and they would lose the house after all their long, heartbreaking struggle. Three times now the agent 
had warned him that he would not tolerate another delay. Perhaps it was very base of Jurgis to be thinking about the house, when he had the other unspeakable thing to fill his mind. Yet how much he had suffered for this house, how much they had all of them suffered! It was their one hope of respite as long as they lived. They had put all their money into it, and they were working people, poor people, whose money was their strength, the very substance of them, body and soul, the thing by which they lived and for lack of which they died. And they would lose it all. They would be turned out into the streets and have to hide in some icy garret and live or die as best they could. Jurgis had all the night, and all of many more nights, to think about this, and he saw the thing in its details. He lived it all as if he were there. They would sell their furniture, and then run into debt at the stores, and then be refused credit. They would borrow a little from the Chevilleses, whose delicatessen store was tottering on the brink of ruin. The neighbors would come and help them a little. Poor, sick Jadwiga would bring a few spare pennies, as she always did when people were starving, and Tomosius Kushlaika would bring them the proceeds of a night's fiddling. So they would struggle to hang on until he got out of jail. Or would they know that he was in jail? Would they be able to find out anything about him? Would they be allowed to see him? Or was it to be part of his punishment to be kept in ignorance about their fate? His mind would hang upon the worst possibilities. He saw Ona ill and tortured, Maria out of her place, little Stanislavus unable to get to work for the snow, the whole family turned out on the street. God Almighty, would they actually let them lie down in the street and die? Would there be no help even then? Would they wander about in the snow till they froze? Jurgis had never seen any dead bodies in the streets, but he had seen people evicted and disappear. No one knew where. And though the city had a relief bureau, though there was a charity organization society in the stockyards district, in all his life there he had never heard of either of them. They did not advertise their activities, having more calls than they could attend to without that. So on until morning. Then he had another ride in the patrol wagon, along with the drunken wife-beater and the maniac, several plain drunks and saloon-fighters, a burglar, and two men who had been arrested for stealing meat from the packing-houses. Along with them he was driven into a large white-walled room, stale-smelling and crowded. In front, upon a raised platform behind a rail, sat a stout, florid-faced personage with a nose broken out in purple blotches. Our friend realized vaguely that he was about to be tried. He wondered what for, whether or not his victim might be dead, and if so, what they would do with him. Hang him, perhaps, or beat him to death. Nothing would have surprised Jurgis, who knew little of the laws. Yet he had picked up gossip enough to have it occur to him that the loud-voiced man upon the bench might be the notorious Justice Callahan, about whom the people of Packingtown spoke with bated breath. Pat Callahan, Growler Pat, 
as he had been known before he ascended the bench, had begun life as a butcher-boy and a bruiser of local reputation. He had gone into politics almost as soon as he had learned to talk, and had held two offices at once before he was old enough to vote. If Scully was the thumb, Pat Callahan was the first finger of the unseen hand whereby the Packers held down the people of the district. No politician in Chicago ranked higher in their confidence. He had been at it a long time, had been the business agent in the city council of Old Durham, the self-made merchant way back in the early days, when the whole city of Chicago had been up at auction. Growler Pat had given up holding city offices very early in his career, caring only for party power and giving the rest of his time to superintending his dives and brothels. Of late years, however, since his children were growing up, he had begun to value respectability, and had had himself made a magistrate, a position for which he was admirably fitted, because of his strong conservatism and his contempt for foreigners. Jurgis sat gazing about the room for an hour or two. He was in hopes that someone of the family would come, but in this he was disappointed. Finally he was led before the bar, and a lawyer for the company appeared against him. Connor was under the doctor's care, the lawyer explained briefly, and if his honor would hold the prisoner for a week. Three hundred dollars, said his honor promptly. Jurgis was staring from the judge to the lawyer in perplexity. Have you anyone to go on your bond? demanded the judge, and then a clerk who stood at Jurgis' elbow explained to him what this meant. The latter shook his head, and before he realized what had happened the policemen were leading him away again. They took him to a room where other prisoners were waiting, and here he stayed until court adjourned, when he had another long and bitterly cold ride in a patrol wagon to the county jail, which is on the north side of the city and nine or ten miles from the stockyards. Here they searched Jurgis, leaving him only his money which consisted of fifteen cents. Then they led him to a room and told him to strip for a bath, after which he had to walk down a long gallery past the grated cell doors of the inmates of the jail. This was a great event to the latter, the daily review of the new arrivals, all stark naked, and many and diverting were the comments. Jurgis was required to stay in the bath longer than any one in the vain hope of getting out of him a few of his phosphates and acids. The prisoners roomed two in a cell, but that day there was one left over, and he was the one. The cells were in tiers, opening upon galleries. His cell was about five feet by seven in size, with a stone floor and a heavy wooden bench built into it. There was no window, the only light came from the windows near the roof at one end of the court outside. There were two bunks, one above the other, each with a straw mattress and a pair of gray blankets, the latter stiff as boards with filth and alive with fleas, bedbugs, and lice. When Jurgis lifted up the mattress he discovered beneath it a layer of scurrying roaches, almost as badly frightened as himself. Here they brought him more duffers and dope, 
with the addition of a bowl of soup. Many of the prisoners had their meals brought in from a restaurant, but Jurgis had no money for that. Some had books to read, and cards to play, with candles to burn by night, but Jurgis was all alone in darkness and silence. He could not sleep again. There was the same maddening procession of thoughts that lashed him like whips upon his naked back. When night fell he was pacing up and down his cell like a wild beast that breaks its teeth upon the bars of its cage. Now and then in his frenzy he would fling himself against the walls of the place, beating his hands upon them. They cut him and bruised him, they were cold and merciless as the men who had built them. In the distance there was a church-tower bell that told the hours one by one. When it came to midnight Jurgis was lying upon the floor with his head in his hands, listening. Instead of falling silent at the end, the bell broke into a sudden clangor. Jurgis raised his head. What could that mean? A fire? God! Suppose there were to be a fire in this jail! But then he made out a melody in the ringing. There were chimes, and they seemed to waken the city. All around, far and near, there were bells ringing wild music. For fully a minute Jurgis lay lost in wonder. Before, all at once, the meaning of it broke over him, that this was Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve! He had forgotten it entirely. There was a breaking of floodgates, a whirl of new memories and new griefs rushing into his mind. In far Lithuania they had celebrated Christmas and it came to him as if it had been yesterday, himself a little child with his lost brother and his dead father in the cabin, in the deep black forest where the snow fell all day and all night and buried them from the world. It was too far off for Santa Claus in Lithuania, but it was not too far for peace and goodwill to men, for the wonder-bearing vision of the Christ-child and even in Packingtown they had not forgotten it. Some gleam of it had never failed to break their darkness. Last Christmas Eve and all Christmas Day Jurgis had toiled on the killing beds, and Ona at wrapping hands, and still they had found strength enough to take the children for a walk upon the avenue, to see the store windows all decorated with Christmas trees and ablaze with electric lights. In one window there would be live geese, in another marvels in sugar, pink and white canes big enough for ogres, and cakes with cherubs upon them. In a third there would be rows of fat yellow turkeys decorated with rosettes, and rabbits and squirrels hanging. In a fourth would be a fairyland of toys, lovely dolls with pink dresses, and woolly sheep and drums and soldier hats. Nor did they have to go without their share of all this either. The last time they had had a big basket with them and all their Christmas marketing to do, a roast of pork, and a cabbage, and some rye bread, and a pair of mittens for Ona, and a rubber doll that squeaked, and a little green cornucopia full of candy to be hung from the gas-jet and gazed at by half a dozen pairs of longing eyes. Even half a year of the sausage machines and the fertilizer mill had not been able to kill the thought of Christmas in them. There was a choking in Jurgis' throat 
as he recalled that the very night Ona had not come home, Teta Elspeta had taken him aside and shown him an old valentine that she had picked up in a paper store for three cents, dingy and shop-worn, but with bright colors and figures of angels and doves. She had wiped all the specks off this, and was going to set it on the mantel where the children could see it. Great sobs shook Jurgis at this memory. They would spend their Christmas in misery and despair, with him in prison, and Ona ill, and their home in desolation. Ah, it was too cruel! Why at least had they not left him alone? Why, after they had shut him in jail, must they be ringing Christmas chimes in his ears? But no, their bells were not ringing for him. Their Christmas was not meant for him. They were simply not counting him at all. He was of no consequence. He was flung aside like a bit of trash, the carcass of some animal. It was horrible, horrible. His wife might be dying, his baby might be starving, his whole family might be perishing in the cold, and all the while they were ringing their Christmas chimes, and the bitter mockery of it, all this was punishment for him. They put him in a place where the snow could not beat in, where the cold could not eat through his bones. They brought him food and drink. Why, in the name of heaven, if they must punish him, did they not put his family in jail and leave him outside? Why could they find no better way to punish him than to leave three weak women and six helpless children to starve and freeze? That was their law. That was their justice. Jurgis stood upright, trembling with passion, his hands clenched and his arms upraised, his whole soul ablaze with hatred and defiance. Ten thousand curses upon them and their law. Their justice. It was a lie. It was a lie, a hideous, brutal lie, a thing too black and hateful for any world but a world of nightmares. It was a sham and a loathsome mockery. There was no justice. There was no right anywhere in it. It was only force. It was tyranny, the will and the power, reckless and unrestrained. They had ground him beneath their heel. They had devoured all his substance. They had murdered his old father. They had broken and wrecked his wife. They had crushed and cowed his whole family. And now they were through with him. They had no further use for him. And because he had interfered with them, had gotten in their way, this was what they had done to him. They had put him behind bars, as if he had been a wild beast, a thing without sense or reason, without rights, without affections, without feelings. Nay, they would not even have treated a beast as they had treated him. Would any man in his senses have trapped a wild thing in its lair and left its young behind to die? These midnight hours were fateful ones to Jurgis. In them was the beginning of his rebellion, of his outlawry, and his unbelief. He had no wit to trace back the social crime to its far sources. He could not say that it was the thing men have called the system that was crushing him to the earth, that it was the packers, his masters, who had bought up the law of the land and had dealt out their brutal will to him from the seat of justice. 
he only knew that he was wronged, and that the world had wronged him, that the law, that society, with all its powers, had declared itself his foe. And every hour his soul grew blacker, every hour he dreamed new dreams of vengeance, of defiance, of raging, frenzied hate. The vilest deeds, like poison weeds, bloom well in prison air. It is only what is good in man that wastes and withers there. Pale anguish keeps the heavy gate, and the water is despair. So wrote a poet, to whom the world had dealt its justice. I know not whether laws be right, or whether laws be wrong. All that we know who lie in jail is that the wall is strong, and they do well to hide their hell, for in it things are done, that son of God nor son of man ever should look upon. End of chapter 16 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter 17 of the Jungle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Tom Weiss The Jungle by Upton Sinclair Chapter 17 At seven o'clock the next morning Jurgis was let out to get water to wash his cell a duty which he performed faithfully, but which most of the prisoners were accustomed to shirk until their cells became so filthy that the guards interposed. Then he had more duffers and dope, and afterward was allowed three hours for exercise in a long cement-walked court roofed with glass. Here were all the inmates of the jail, crowded together. At one side of the court was a place for visitors, cut off by two heavy wire screens, a foot apart, so that nothing could be passed into the prisoners. Here Jurgis watched anxiously, but there came no one to see him. Soon after he went back to his cell a keeper opened the door to let in another prisoner. He was a dapper young fellow, with a light brown mustache and blue eyes, and a graceful figure. He nodded to Jurgis, and then, as the keeper closed the door upon him, began gazing critically about him. "'Well, pal,' he said as his glance encountered Jurgis again, "'good morning.' "'Good morning,' said Jurgis. "'A rum go for Christmas, eh?' added the other. Jurgis nodded. The newcomer went to the bunks and inspected the blankets. He lifted up the mattress and then dropped it with an exclamation. "'My God!' he said. "'That's the worst yet!' He glanced at Jurgis again. Looks as if it hadn't been slept in last night. Couldn't stand it, eh? I didn't want to sleep last night, said Jurgis. When did you come in? Yesterday. The other had another look around and then wrinkled up his nose. There's the devil of a stink in here, he said suddenly. What is it? It's me, said Jurgis. You? Yes, me. Didn't they make you wash? Yes, but this don't wash. What is it? Fertilizer. Fertilizer? The deuce! What are you? I work in the stockyards. At least I did until the other day. It's in my clothes. That's a new one on me, said the newcomer. 
I thought I'd been up against them all. What are you in for? I hit my boss. Oh, that's it. What did he do? He... he treated me mean. I see. You're what's called an honest working man. What are you? Jurgis asked. I, the other laughed. They say I'm a cracksman, he said. What's that? asked Jurgis. Safes and such things, answered the other. Oh, said Jurgis wonderingly, and stared at the speaker in awe. You mean you break into them? You, you... Yes, laughed the other. That's what they say. He did not look to be over twenty-two or three, though as Jurgis found afterward he was thirty. He spoke like a man of education, like what the world calls a gentleman. "'Is that what you're here for?' Jurgis inquired. "'No,' was the answer. "'I'm here for disorderly conduct. They were mad because they couldn't get any evidence.' "'What's your name?' the young fellow continued after a pause. "'My name's Duane, Jack Duane. I'm more than a dozen, but that's my company one.' He seated himself on the floor with his back to the wall and his legs crossed, and went on talking easily. He soon put Jurgis on a friendly footing. He was evidently a man of the world, used to getting on, and not too proud to hold conversation with a mere laboring man. He drew Jurgis out, and heard all about his life, all but the one unmentionable thing, and then he told stories about his own life. He was a great one for stories, not always of the choicest. Being sent to jail had apparently not disturbed his cheerfulness. He had done time twice before, it seemed, and he took it all with a frolic welcome. What with women and wine and the excitement of his vocation, a man could afford to rest now and then. Naturally the aspect of prison life was changed for Jurgis by the arrival of a cellmate. He could not turn his face to the wall and sulk. He had to speak when he was spoken to nor could he help being interested in the conversation of Duane, the first educated man with whom he had ever talked. How could he help listening with wonder while the other told of midnight ventures and perilous escapes, of feastings and orgies, of fortunes squandered in a night? The young fellow had an amused contempt for Jurgis as a sort of working mule. He too had felt the world's injustice, but instead of bearing it patiently he had struck back and struck hard. He was striking all the time. There was war between him and society. He was a genial freebooter, living off the enemy without fear or shame. He was not always victorious, but then defeat did not mean annihilation, and need not break his spirit. Withal he was a good-hearted fellow, too much so, it appeared. His story came out, not in the first day, nor the second, but in the long hours that dragged by, in which they had nothing to do but talk and nothing to talk of but themselves. Jack Duane was from the East. He was a college-bred man, had been studying electrical engineering. Then his father had met with misfortune in business and killed himself, and there had been his mother and a younger brother and sister. Also, there was an invention of Duane's. Jurgis could not understand it clearly, 
but it had to do with telegraphing, and it was a very important thing. There were fortunes in it, millions upon millions of dollars. And Duane had been robbed of it by a great company, and got tangled up in lawsuits and lost all his money. Then somebody had given him a tip on a horse race, and he had tried to retrieve his fortune with another person's money, and had to run away, and all the rest had come from that. The other asked him what had led him to safe-breaking, to Jurgis a wild and appalling occupation to think about. A man he had met, his cellmate had replied, one thing leads to another. Didn't he ever wonder about his family? Jurgis asked. Sometimes, the other answered, but not often. He didn't allow it. Thinking about it would make it no better. This wasn't a world in which a man had any business with a family. Sooner or later Jurgis would find that out also, and give up the fight and shift for himself. Jurgis was so transparently what he pretended to be that his cellmate was as open with him as a child. It was pleasant to tell him adventures. He was so full of wonder and admiration. He was so new to the ways of the country. Duane did not even bother to keep back names and places. He told all his triumphs and his failures, his loves and his griefs. Also he introduced Jurgis to many of the other prisoners, nearly half of whom he knew by name. The crowd had already given Jurgis a name. They called him he stinker. This was cruel, but they meant no harm by it, and he took it with a good-natured grin. Our friend had caught now and then a whiff from the sewers over which he lived, but this was the first time that he had ever been splashed by their filth. This jail was a Noah's Ark of the city's crime. There were murderers, hold-up men, and burglars, embezzlers, counterfeiters, and forgers, bigamists, shoplifters, confidence men, petty thieves and pickpockets, gamblers and procurers, brawlers, beggars, tramps, and drunkards. They were black and white, old and young, Americans and natives of every nation under the sun. There were hardened criminals and innocent men too poor to give bail, old men and boys literally not yet in their teens. They were the drainage of the great festering ulcer of society." They were hideous to look upon, sickening to talk to. All life had turned to rottenness and stench in them. Love was a beastliness, joy was a snare, and God was an imprecation. They strolled here and there about the courtyard, and Jurgis listened to them. He was ignorant, and they were wise. They had been everywhere and tried everything. They could tell the whole hateful story of it set forth the inner soul of a city in which justice and honor, women's bodies and men's souls, were for sale in the marketplace, and human beings writhed and fought and fell upon each other like wolves in a pit in which lusts were raging fires and men were fuel, and humanity was festering and stewing and wallowing in its own corruption. Into this wild beast tangle these men had been born without their consent, they had taken part in it because they could not help it. That they were in jail was no disgrace to them, for the game had never been fair. The dice were loaded. They were swindlers and thieves of pennies and dimes, and they had been trapped and put out of the way by the swindlers and thieves 
of millions of dollars. To most of this Jurgis tried not to listen. They frightened him with their savage mockery, and all the while his heart was far away where his loved ones were calling. Now and then in the midst of it his thoughts would take flight, and then the tears would come into his eyes, and he would be called back by the jeering laughter of his companions. He spent a week in this company, and during all that time he had no word from his home. He paid one of his fifteen cents for a postal card, and his companion wrote a note to the family telling them where he was and when he would be tried. There came no answer to it, however, and at last, the day before New Year's, Jurgis bade good-bye to Jack Duane. The latter gave him his address, or rather the address of his mistress, and made Jurgis promise to look him up. "'Maybe I could help you out of a hole some day,' he said, and added that he was sorry to have him go. Jurgis rode in the patrol wagon back to Justice Callahan's court for trial. One of the first things he made out as he entered the room was Teta Elzbieta and little Kotrina, looking pale and frightened, seated far in the rear. His heart began to pound, but he did not dare to try to signal to them, and neither did Elzbieta. He took his seat in the prisoner's pen and sat gazing at them in helpless agony. He saw that Ona was not with them, and was full of foreboding as to what that might mean. He spent half an hour brooding over this, and then suddenly he straightened up and the blood rushed into his face. A man had come in. Jurgis could not see his features for the bandages that swathed him, but he knew the burly figure. It was Connor. A trembling seized him, and his limbs bent as if for a spring. Then suddenly he felt a hand on his collar, and heard a voice behind him. "'Sit down, you son of a—' He subsided, but he never took his eyes off his enemy. The fellow was still alive, which was a disappointment in one way, and yet it was pleasant to see him, all in penitential plasters. He and the company lawyer who was with him came and took seats within the judge's railing, and a minute later the clerk called Jurgis' name, and the policeman jerked him to his feet and led him before the bar, gripping him tightly by the arm, lest he should spring upon the boss. Jurgis listened while the man entered the witness chair, took the oath, and told his story. The wife of the prisoner had been employed in a department near him, and had been discharged for impotence to him. Half an hour later he had been violently attacked, knocked down, and almost choked to death. He had brought witnesses. "'They will probably not be necessary,' observed the judge, and he turned to Jurgis. "'You admit attacking the plaintiff?' he asked. "'Him?' inquired Jurgis, pointing at the boss. "'Yes,' said the judge. "'I hit him, sir,' said Jurgis. "'Say, Your Honor,' said the officer, pinching his arm hard. "'Your Honor,' said Jurgis obediently. "'You tried to choke him?' "'Yes, sir, Your Honor.' Ever been arrested before? No, sir, Your Honor. What have you to say for yourself? Jurgis hesitated. What had he to say? In two years and a half he had learned to speak English for practical purposes, 
but these had never included the statement that someone had intimidated and seduced his wife. He tried once or twice, stammering and balking to the annoyance of the judge, who was gasping from the odor of fertilizer. Finally the prisoner made it understood that his vocabulary was inadequate, and there stepped up a dapper young man with waxed mustaches, bidding him speak in any language he knew. Jurgis began. Supposing that he would be given time, he explained how the boss had taken advantage of his wife's position to make advances to her, and had threatened her with the loss of her place. When the interpreter had translated this, the judge, whose calendar was crowded and whose automobile was ordered for a certain hour, interrupted with the remark, "'Oh, I see. Well, if he made love to your wife, why didn't she complain to the superintendent or leave the place?' Jurgis hesitated, somewhat taken aback. He began to explain that they were very poor, that work was hard to get. "'I see,' said Justice Callahan. "'So instead you thought you would knock him down.' He turned to the plaintiff, inquiring, "'Is there any truth in this story, Mr. Connor?' "'Not a particle, Your Honor,' said the boss. "'It is very unpleasant. They tell some such tale every time you have to discharge a woman.' "'Yes, I know,' said the judge. "'I hear it often enough. The fellow seems to have handled you pretty roughly. Thirty days and costs. Next case.' Jurgis had been listening in perplexity. It was only when the policeman who had him by the arm turned and started to lead him away that he realized that sentence had been passed. He gazed round him wildly. Thirty days!' he panted, and then he whirled upon the judge. "'What will my family do?' he cried frantically. "'I have a wife and baby, sir, and they have no money. My God, they will starve to death!' "'You would have done well to think about them before you committed the assault,' said the judge dryly, as he turned to look at the next prisoner. Jurgis would have spoken again, but the policeman had seized him by the collar and was twisting it, and a second policeman was making for him with evidently hostile intentions. So he let them lead him away. Far down the room he saw Elzbieta and Kotrina, risen from their seats, staring in fright. He made one effort to go to them, and then, brought back by another twist at his throat, he bowed his head and gave up the struggle. They thrust him into a cell-room where other prisoners were waiting, and as soon as court had adjourned they let him down with them into the Black Mariah and drove him away. This time Jurgis was bound for the bird-well a petty jail where Cook County prisoners served their time. It was even filthier and more crowded than the county jail. All the smaller fry of the latter had been sifted into it, the petty thieves and swindlers, the brawlers and vagrants. For his cellmate Jurgis had an Italian fruit-seller who had refused to pay his graft to the policeman and been arrested for carrying a large pocket-knife. As he did not understand a word of English, our friend was glad when he left. He gave place to a Norwegian sailor, who had lost half an ear in a drunken brawl, and who proved to be quarrelsome, cursing Jurgis because he moved in his bunk and caused the roaches to drop upon the lower one. It would have been quite intolerable staying in a cell with this wild beast, but for the fact that all day long the prisoners were put at work breaking stone. Ten days of his thirty Jorge spent thus, without hearing a word from his family. Then one day 
a keeper came and informed him that there was a visitor to see him. Jurgis turned white, and so weak at the knees that he could hardly leave his cell. The man led him down the corridor and a flight of steps to the visitor's room, which was barred like a cell. Through the grating Jurgis could see someone sitting in a chair, and as he came into the room the person started up, and he saw that it was little Stanislavus. At the sight of someone from home the big fellow nearly went to pieces. He had to steady himself by a chair, and he put his other hand to his forehead, as if to clear away a mist. Well, he said weakly. Little Stanislavus was also trembling, and all but too frightened to speak. They—they they sent me to tell you, he said with a gulp. Well? Jurgis repeated. He followed the boy's glance to where the keeper was standing, watching them. Never mind that, Jurgis cried wildly. How are they? Ona is very sick, Stanislavus said, and we are almost starving. We can't get along. We thought you might be able to help us. Jurgis gripped the chair tighter. There were beads of perspiration on his forehead, and his hand shook. I can't help you, he said. Ona lies in her room all day, the boy went on, breathlessly. She won't eat anything, and she cries all the time. She won't tell what is the matter, and she won't go to work at all. Then a long time ago the man came for the rent. He was very cross. He came again last week. He said he would turn us out of the house. And then Maria... A sob choked Stanislavus, and he stopped. "'What's the matter with Maria?' cried Jurgis. "'She's cut her hand,' said the boy. "'She's cut it bad this time, worse than before. She can't work, and it's all turning green, and the company doctor says she may... she may have to have it cut off. And Maria cries all the time. Her money is nearly all gone, too. And we can't pay the rent and the interest on the house, and we have no coal and nothing more to eat. And the man at the store, he says... The little fellow stopped again, beginning to whimper. "'Go on,' the other panted in frenzy. "'Go on!' "'I... I will,' sobbed Stanislavus. "'It's so... so cold all the time. And last Sunday it snowed again. A deep deep snow. And I couldn't, couldn't get to work. God! Jurgis half shouted, and he took a step toward the child. There was an old hatred between them because of the snow, ever since that dreadful morning when the boy had had his fingers frozen, and Jurgis had had to beat him to send him to work. Now he clenched his hands, looking as if he would try to break through the grating. You little villain! he cried. You didn't try! I did, I did, wailed Stanislavus, shrinking from him in terror. I tried all day, two days. Elzbieta was with me, and she couldn't either. We couldn't walk at all, it was so deep, and we had nothing to eat, and, oh, it was so cold. I tried, and then the third day Ona went with me. Ona? Yes, she tried to get to work too. She had to. We were all starving but she had lost her place. Jurgis reeled and gave a gasp. She went back to that place, he screamed. She tried to, said Stanislavus, gazing at him in perplexity. Why not, Jurgis? 
The man breathed hard three or four times. "'Go on,' he panted finally. "'I went with her,' said Stanislovas. "'But Miss Henderson wouldn't take her back. And Connor saw her and cursed her. He was still bandaged up. Why did you hit him, Jurgis? There was some fascinating mystery about this, the little fellow knew, but he could get no satisfaction. Jurgis could not speak. He could only stare, his eyes starting out. She has been trying to get other work, the boy went on, but she's so weak she can't keep up. And my boss would not take me back either. Ona says he knows Connor, and that's the reason. They've all got a grudge against us now. So I've got to go downtown and sell papers with the rest of the boys and Kotrina. Kotrina? Yes, she's been selling papers too. She does best because she's a girl. Only the cold is so bad it's terrible coming home at night, Jurgis. Sometimes they can't come home at all. I'm going to try to find them tonight and sleep where they do. It's so late and it's such a long ways home. I've had to walk and I didn't know where it was. I don't know how to get back, either. Only Mother said I must come, because you would want to know, and maybe somebody would help your family when they had put you in jail so you couldn't work. And I walked all day to get here, and I only had a piece of bread for breakfast, Jurgis. Mother hasn't any work, either, because the sausage department is shut down, and she goes and begs at houses with a basket, and people give her food. Only she didn't get much yesterday. It was too cold for her fingers, and today she was crying. So little Stanislavus went on, sobbing as he talked, and Jurgis stood gripping the table tightly, saying not a word, but feeling that his head would burst. It was like having weights piled upon him, one after another crushing the life out of him. He struggled and fought within himself as if in some terrible nightmare in which a man suffers an agony and cannot lift his hand nor cry out, but feels that he is going mad, that his brain is on fire. Just when it seemed that another turn of the screw would kill him, little Stanislavus stopped. "'You cannot help us?' he said weakly. Jurgis shook his head. "'They won't give you anything here?' He shook it again. When are you coming out? Three weeks yet, Jurgis answered. And the boy gazed around him uncertainly. Then I might as well go, he said. Jurgis nodded. Then suddenly, recollecting, he put his hand into his pocket and drew it out, shaking. Here, he said, holding out the fourteen cents. Take this to them. And Stanislavus took it, and after a little more hesitation started for the door. "'Good-bye, Jurgis,' he said, and the other noticed that he walked unsteadily as he passed out of sight. For a minute or so Jurgis stood clinging to his chair, reeling and swaying. Then the keeper touched him on the arm, and he turned and went back to breaking stone. End of chapter 17 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter 18 of The Jungle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter 18. 
Jurgis did not get out of the Bridewell quite as soon as he had expected. To his sentence there were added court costs of a dollar and a half. He was supposed to pay for the trouble of putting him in jail, and not having the money was obliged to work it off by three days more of toil. Nobody had taken the trouble to tell him this. Only after counting the days and looking forward to the end in an agony of impatience, when the hour came that he expected to be free, he found himself still set at the stone heap, and laughed at when he ventured to protest. Then he concluded he must have counted wrong, but as another day passed he gave up all hope, and was sunk in the depths of despair when one morning after breakfast a keeper came to him with the word that his time was up at last. So he doffed his prison garb, and put on his old fertilizer clothing, and heard the door of the prison clang behind him. He stood upon the steps, bewildered. He could hardly believe that it was true, that the sky was above him again and the open street before him, that he was a free man. But then the cold began to strike through his clothes, and he started quickly away. There had been a heavy snow, and now a thaw had set in. Fine sleety rain was falling, driven by a wind that pierced Jurgis to the bone. He had not stopped for his overcoat when he set out to do up Connor, and so his rides in the patrol wagons had been cruel experiences. His clothing was old and worn thin, and it never had been very warm. Now as he trudged on the rain soon wet it through. There were six inches of watery slush on the sidewalks, so that his feet would soon have been soaked even had there been no holes in his shoes. Jurgis had had enough to eat in the jail, and the work had been the least trying of any that he had done since he came to Chicago. But even so he had not grown strong. The fear and grief that had preyed upon his mind had worn him thin. Now he shivered and shrunk from the rain, hiding his hands in his pockets and hunching his shoulders together. The Bridewell grounds were on the outskirts of the city, and the country around them was unsettled and wild. On one side was the big drainage canal, and on the other a maze of railroad tracks, and so the wind had full sweep. After walking a ways Jurgis met a little ragamuffin whom he hailed. "'Hey, Sonny!' the boy cocked one eye at him. He knew that Jurgis was a jailbird by his shaven head. "'What yer want?' he queried. "'How do you go to the stockyards?' Jurgis demanded. "'I don't go,' replied the boy. Jurgis hesitated a moment, nonplussed. Then he said, "'I mean, which is the way?' "'Why don't yer say so, then?' was the response, and the boy pointed to the northwest across the tracks. That way. How far is it? Jurgis asked. I don't know, said the other. Maybe twenty miles or so. Twenty miles, Jurgis echoed, and his face fell. He had to walk every foot of it, for they had turned him out of jail without a penny in his pockets. Yet when he once got started, and his blood warmed with walking, he forgot everything in the fever of his thoughts. All the dreadful imaginations that had haunted him in his cell now rushed into his mind at once. The agony was almost over. He was going to find out. And he clenched his hands in his pockets as he strode, following his flying desire almost at a run. Ona, 
the baby, the family, the house, he would know the truth about them all. And he was coming to the rescue. He was free again. His hands were his own, and he could help them, he could do battle for them against the world. For an hour or so he walked thus, and then he began to look about him. He seemed to be leaving the city altogether. The street was turning into a country road, leading out to the westward. There were snow-covered fields on either side of him. Soon he met a farmer driving a two-horse wagon loaded with straw, and he stopped him. "'Is this the way to the stockyards?' he asked. The farmer scratched his head. "'I don't know just where they be,' he said, "'but they're in the city somewhere, and you're going dead away from it now.' Jurgis looked dazed. "'I was told this was the way,' he said. "'Who told you?' "'A boy.' "'Well, maybe he was playing a joke on ye. The best thing ye can do is to go back, and when ye get into town ask a policeman. I'd take ye in, only I've come a long ways and I'm loaded heavy. Get up!' So Jurgis turned and followed, and toward the end of the morning he began to see Chicago again. Past endless blocks of two-story shanties he walked, along wooden sidewalks and unpaved pathways treacherous with deep slush-holes. Every few blocks there would be a railroad crossing on the level with the sidewalk, a death-trap for the unwary. Long freight trains would be passing, the cars clanking and crashing together, and Jurgis would pace without waiting, burning up with a fever of impatience. Occasionally the cars would stop for some minutes, and wagons and streetcars would crowd together waiting, the drivers squaring at each other, or hiding beneath umbrellas out of the rain. At such times Jurgis would dodge under the gates and run across the tracks and between the cars, taking his life into his hands. He crossed a long bridge over a river frozen solid and covered with slush. Not even on the river bank was the snow white. The rain which fell was a diluted solution of smoke, and Jurgis' hands and face were streaked with black. Then he came into the business part of the city, where the streets were sewers of inky blackness, with horses sleeping and plunging, and women and children flying across in panic-stricken droves. These streets were huge canyons formed by towering black buildings, echoing with the clang of car-gongs and the shouts of drivers. The people who swarmed in them were as busy as ants, all hurrying breathlessly, never stopping to look at anything nor at each other. The solitary, trampish-looking foreigner, with water-soaked clothing and haggard face and anxious eyes, was as much alone as he hurried past them, as much unheeded and as lost as if he had been a thousand miles deep in a wilderness. A policeman gave him his direction and told him that he had five miles to go. He came again to the slum districts, to avenues of saloons and cheap stores, with long, dingy red factory buildings, and coal-yards and railroad tracks. And then Jurgis lifted up his head and began to sniff the air like a startled animal, scenting the far-off odor of home. It was late afternoon then, and he was hungry, but the dinner invitations hung out of the saloons were not for him. So he came at last to the stockyards, to the black volcanoes of smoke, and the lowing cattle, and the stench. 
Then, seeing a crowded car, his impatience got the better of him, and he jumped aboard, hiding behind another man, unnoticed by the conductor. In ten minutes more he had reached his street and home. He was half running as he came round the corner. There was the house, at any rate, and then suddenly he stopped and stared. What was the matter with the house? Jurgis looked twice, bewildered. Then he glanced at the house next door, and at the one beyond, then at the saloon on the corner. Yes, it was the right place, quite certainly. He had not made any mistake. But the house, the house was a different color. He came a couple of steps nearer. Yes, it had been gray, and now it was yellow. The trimmings around the windows had been red, and now they were green. It was all newly painted. How strange it made it seem. Jurgis went closer yet, but keeping on the other side of the street. A sudden and horrible spasm of fear had come over him. His knees were shaking beneath him, and his mind was in a whirl. New paint on the house, and new weatherboards, where the old had begun to rot off, and the agent had got after them. New shingles over the hole in the roof, too, the hole that had for six months been the bane of his soul, he having no money to have it fixed, and no time to fix it himself, and the rain leaking in, and overflowing the pots and pans he put to catch it, and flooding the attic, and loosening the plaster. And now it was fixed, and the broken window-pane replaced, and curtains in the windows, new white curtains, stiff and shiny. Then suddenly the front door opened. Jurgis stood, his chest heaving as he struggled to catch his breath. A boy had come out, a stranger to him, a big, fat, rosy-cheeked youngster, such as had never been seen in his home before. Jurgis stared at the boy, fascinated. He came down the steps whistling, kicking off the snow. He stopped at the foot and picked up some, and then leaned against the railing, making a snowball. A moment later he looked around and saw Jurgis, and their eyes met. It was a hostile glance, the boy evidently thinking that the other had suspicions of the snowball. When Jurgis started slowly across the street toward him he gave a quick glance about, meditating retreat, but then he concluded to stand his ground. Jurgis took hold of the railing of the steps, for he was a little unsteady. "'What... what are you doing here?' he managed to gasp. "'Go on,' said the boy. "'You,' Jurgis tried again. "'What do you want here?' "'Me?' answered the boy angrily. "'I live here.' "'You live here?' Jurgis panted. He turned white and clung more tightly to the railing. "'You live here? Then where's my family?' The boy looked surprised. "'Your family?' he echoed and Jurgis started toward him. "'I—this is my house!' he cried. "'Come off!' said the boy. Then suddenly the door upstairs opened, and he called, "'Hey, Ma, here's a fellow says he owns this house!' A stout Irishwoman came to the top of the steps. "'What's that?' she demanded. Jurgis turned toward her. "'Where is my family?' he cried wildly. "'I left them here. This is my home. What are you doing in my home?' The woman stared at him in frightened wonder. She must have thought she was dealing with a maniac. Jurgis looked like one. 
"'Your home?' she echoed. "'My home!' he half shrieked. "'I lived here, I tell you.' "'You must be mistaken,' she answered him. "'No one ever lived here. This is a new house. They told us so. They—' "'What have they done with my family?' shouted Jurgis frantically. A light had begun to break upon the woman. Perhaps she had had doubts of what they had told her. "'I don't know where your family is,' she said. I bought the house only three days ago, and there was nobody here, and they told me it was all new. Do you really mean you had ever rented it?' "'Rented it?' panted Jurgis. "'I bought it. I paid for it. I own it. And they—my God, can't you tell me where my people went?' She made him understand at last that she knew nothing. Jurgis' brain was so confused that he could not grasp the situation. It was as if his family had been wiped out of existence, as if they were proving to be dream people who never had existed at all. He was quite lost, but then suddenly he thought of Grandmother Majauskini, who lived in the next block. She would know. He turned and started at a run. Grandmother Majauskini came to the door herself. She cried out when she saw Jurgis, wild-eyed and shaking. Yes, yes, she could tell him. The family had moved. They had not been able to pay the rent, and they had been turned out into the snow, and the house had been repainted and sold again the next week. No, she had not heard how they were, but she could tell him that they had gone back to Anile, Yuknini, with whom they had stayed when they first came to the yards. Wouldn't Jurgis come in and rest? It was certainly too bad, if only he had not got into jail." and so Jurgis turned and staggered away. He did not go very far round the corner he gave out completely, and sat down on the steps of a saloon, and hid his face in his hands, and shook all over with dry, racking sobs. Their home! Their home! They had lost it! Grief, despair, rage overwhelmed him. What was any imagination of the thing to this heartbreaking, crushing reality of it? to the sight of strange people living in his house, hanging their curtains to his windows, staring at him with hostile eyes. It was monstrous, it was unthinkable, they could not do it, it could not be true. Only think what he had suffered for that house, what miseries they had all suffered for it, the price they had paid for it. The whole long agony came back to him, their sacrifices in the beginning, their three hundred dollars that they had scraped together, all they owned in the world, all that stood between them and starvation, and then their toil, month by month, to get together the twelve dollars and the interest as well, and now and then the taxes, and the other charges, and the repairs, and what not. Why, they had put their very souls into their payments on that house. They had paid for it with their sweat and tears. Yes, more, with their very life-blood. Dede Antanas had died of the struggle to earn that money. He would have been alive and strong today if he had not had to work in Durham's dark cellars to earn his share. And Ona, too, had given her health and strength to pay for it. She was wrecked and ruined because of it, and so was he who had been a big, strong man three years ago, and now sat there shivering, broken, cowed, weeping like a hysterical child. Ah, they had cast their all into the fight. And they had lost. They had lost. 
all that they had paid was gone, every cent of it. And their house was gone. They were back where they had started from, flung out into the cold to starve and freeze. Jurgis could see all the truth now, could see himself through the whole long course of events, the victim of ravenous vultures that had torn into his vitals and devoured him, of fiends that had racked and tortured him, mocking him, meantime, jeering in his face. Ah, God, the horror of it, the monstrous, hideous, demoniacal wickedness of it! He and his family, helpless women and children, struggling to live, ignorant and defenseless and forlorn as they were, and the enemies that had been lurking for them, crouching upon their trail and thirsting for their blood. That first lying circular, that smooth-tongued, slippery agent, that trap of the extra payments, the interest, and all the other charges that they had not the means to pay, and would never have attempted to pay. And then all the tricks of the packers, their masters, the tyrants who ruled them, the shutdowns and the scarcity of work, the irregular hours and the cruel speeding up, the lowering of wages, the raising of prices, the mercilessness of nature about them, of heat and cold, rain and snow, the mercilessness of the city, of the country in which they lived, of its laws and customs that they did not understand. All of these things had worked together for the company that had marked them for its prey and was waiting for its chance. And now, with this last hideous injustice, its time had come, and it had turned them out bag and baggage, and taken their home, and sold it again. And they could do nothing. They were tied hand and foot. The law was against them. The whole machinery of society was at their oppressor's command. If Jurgis so much as raised a hand against them, back he would go into that wild beast-pen from which he had just escaped. To get up and go away was to give up, to acknowledge defeat, to leave the strange family in possession, and Jurgis might have sat shivering in the rain for hours before he could do that, had it not been for the thought of his family. It might be that he had worse things yet to learn, and so he got to his feet and started away, walking on wearily, half days. To Annelay's house in the back of the yards was a good two miles. The distance had never seemed longer to Jurgis, and when he saw the familiar dingy gray shanty his heart was beating fast. He ran up the steps and began to hammer upon the door. The old woman herself came to open it. She had shrunk all up with her rheumatism since Jurgis had seen her last, and her yellow parchment face stared up at him from a little above the level of the doorknob. She gave a start when she saw him. "'Is Ona here?' he cried breathlessly. "'Yes,' was the answer. "'She's here.' "'How?' Jurgis began, and then he stopped short, clutching convulsively at the side of the door. From somewhere within the house had come a sudden cry, a wild, horrible scream of anguish. And the voice was Ona's. For a moment Jurgis stood half paralyzed with fright. Then he bounded past the old woman and into the room. It was Annelay's kitchen, and huddled round the stove were half a dozen women, pale and frightened. One of them started to her feet as Jurgis entered. She was haggard and frightfully thin, with one arm tied up in bandages. He hardly realized that it was Maria. He looked first for Ona, then, not seeing her, 
he stared at the women, expecting them to speak. But they sat dumb, gazing back at him, panic-stricken, and a second later came another piercing scream. It was from the rear of the house and upstairs. Jurgis bounded to a door of the room and flung it open. There was a ladder leading through a trap-door to the garret, and he was at the foot of it when suddenly he heard a voice behind him, and saw Maria at his heels. She seized him by the sleeve with her good hand, panting wildly. "'No, no, Jurgis, stop!' "'What do you mean?' he gasped. "'You mustn't go up,' she cried. Jurgis was half-crazed with bewilderment and fright. "'What's the matter?' he shouted. "'What is it?' Maria clung to him tightly. He could hear Ona sobbing and moaning above, and he fought to get away and climb up without waiting for her reply. "'No, no!' she rushed on. "'Jurgis, you mustn't go up. It's—it's it's the child.' "'The child?' he echoed in perplexity. "'Antonus?' Maria answered him in a whisper. "'The new one.' And then Jurgis went limp and caught himself on the ladder. He stared at her as if she were a ghost. "'The new one!' he gasped. "'But it isn't time!' he added wildly. Maria nodded. "'I know,' she said. "'But it's come.' And then again came Ona's scream, smiting him like a blow in the face, making him wince and turn white. Her voice died away into a wail, then he heard her sobbing again. "'My God, let me die! Let me die!' And Maria hung her arms about him, crying, "'Come out! Come away!' She dragged him back into the kitchen, half carrying him, for he had gone all to pieces. It was as if the pillars of his soul had fallen in. He was blasted with horror. In the room he sank into a chair, trembling like a leaf, Maria still holding him, and the women staring at him in dumb, helpless fright. And then again Ona cried out. He could hear it nearly as plainly here, and he staggered to his feet. "'How long has this been going on?' he panted. "'Not very long,' Maria answered, and then, at a signal from Anile, she rushed on. "'You go away, Jurgis. You can't help. Go away, and come back later. It's all right. It's—' "'Who's with her?' Jurgis demanded, and then, seeing Maria hesitating, he cried again, "'Who's with her?' "'She's—' "'She's all right,' she answered. "'Elzbieta's with her.' "'But the doctor,' he panted. "'Someone who knows.' He seized Maria by the arm. She trembled, and her voice sank beneath a whisper as she replied, "'We—we we have no money.' Then, frightened at the look on his face, she exclaimed, "'It's all right, Jurgis. You don't understand. Go away. Go away. Ah, if only you had waited!' Above her protest Jurgis heard Ona again. He was almost out of his mind. It was all new to him, raw and horrible. It had fallen upon him like a lightning stroke. When little Antanas was born he had been at work, and had known nothing about it until it was over, and now he was not to be controlled. The frightened women were at their wits' end. One after another they tried to reason with him, to make him understand that this was the lot of woman. In the end they half drove him out into the rain where he began to pace up and down, bareheaded and frantic, because he could hear Ona from the street. He would first go away to escape the sounds, and then come back because he could not help it. At the end of a quarter of an hour he rushed up the steps again, and for fear that he would break in the door they had to open it and let him in. There was no arguing with him. 
they could not tell him that all was going well. How could they know, he cried. Why, she was dying. She was being torn to pieces. Listen to her. Listen. Why, it was monstrous. It could not be allowed. There must be some help for it. Had they tried to get a doctor? They might pay him afterward. They could promise. We couldn't promise, Jurgis, protested Maria. We had no money. We have scarcely been able to keep alive. But I can work, Jurgis exclaimed. I can earn money. Yes, she answered. But we thought you were in jail. How could we know when you would return? They will not work for nothing. Maria went on to tell how she had tried to find a midwife, and how they demanded ten, fifteen, even twenty-five dollars, and that in cash. And I only had a quarter, she said. I have spent every cent of my money, all that I had in the bank, and I owe the doctor who has been coming to see me, and he has stopped because he thinks I don't mean to pay him. And we owe Anile for two weeks' rent, and she is nearly starving and is afraid of being turned out. We have been borrowing and begging to keep alive, and there is nothing more we can do. And the children? cried Jurgis. The children have not been home for three days. The weather has been so bad. They could not know what is happening. It came suddenly, two months before we expected it. Jurgis was standing by the table, and he caught himself with his hand. His head sank, and his arm shook. It looked as if he were going to collapse. Then suddenly Anile got up and came hobbling toward him, fumbling in her skirt pocket. She drew out a dirty rag, in one corner of which she had something tied. Here, Jurgis, she said, I have some money. Pollock, see? She unwrapped it and counted it out. Thirty-four cents. You go now, she said, and try and get somebody yourself, and maybe the rest can help. Give him some money, you. He will pay you back some day and it will do him good to have something to think about, even if he doesn't succeed. When he comes back, maybe it will be over. And so the other woman turned out the contents of their pocketbooks. Most of them had only pennies and nickels, but they gave him all. Mrs. Olszewski, who lived next door, and had a husband who was a skilled cattle butcher but a drinking man, gave nearly half a dollar, enough to raise the whole sum to a dollar and a quarter. Then Jurgis thrust it into his pocket, still holding it tightly in his fist, and started away at a run. End of chapter 18 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter 19 of The Jungle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss THE JUNGLE BY UPTON SINCLAIR CHAPTER Nineteen. Madame Haupt Hebaum ran a sign, swinging from a second-story window over a saloon on the avenue. At a side door was another sign, with a hand pointing up a dingy flight of stairs. Jurgis went up them, three at a time. Madame Haupt was frying pork and onions, and had her door half open to let out the smoke. When he tried to knock upon it, it swung open the rest of the way, and he had a glimpse of her with a black bottle turned up to her lips. Then he knocked louder, and she started and put it away. She was a Dutch woman, enormously fat. When she walked she rolled like a small boat on the ocean, 
and the dishes in the cupboard jostled each other. She wore a filthy blue wrapper, and her teeth were black. "'What is it?' she said when she saw Jurgis. He had run like mad all the way, and was so out of breath he could hardly speak. His hair was flying, and his eyes were wild. He looked like a man that had risen from the tomb. "'My wife!' he panted. "'Come quickly!' Madame Haupt set the frying-pan to one side, and wiped her hands on her wrapper. "'You want me to come for a case?' she inquired. "'Yes,' gasped Jurgis. "'I have just come back from a case,' she said. "'I have had no time to eat my dinner. Still, if it is so bad—' "'Yes, it is,' cried he. "'Well, then, perhaps. What you pay?' "'I—I—how much do you want?' Jurgis stammered. Twenty-five dollars. His face fell. I can't pay that, he said. The woman was watching him narrowly. How much do you pay? she demanded. Must I pay now, right away? Yes, all my customers do. I—I I haven't much money, Jurgis began in an agony of dread. I've been in—in in trouble, and my money is gone, but I'll pay you, every cent, just as soon as I can. I can work. What is your work? I have no place now. I must get one. But I—how much have you got now? He could hardly bring himself to reply. When he said a dollar and a quarter, the woman laughed in his face. I would not put on my hat for a dollar and a quarter, she said. It's all I've got, he pleaded, his voice breaking. I must get someone. My wife will die. I can't help it. I—' Madame Haupt had put back her pork and onions on the stove. She turned to him and answered, out of the steam and noise, "'Get me ten dollars cash, and so you can pay me the rest next month.' "'I can't do it. I haven't got it,' Jurgis protested. "'I tell you, I have only a dollar and a quarter.' The woman turned to her work. I don't believe you, she said. That is all to try to sheet me. But it's the reason a big man like you has got only a dollar and a quarter. I've just been in jail, Jurgis cried. He was ready to get down upon his knees to the woman, and I had no money before, and my family has almost starved. Where is your friends that ought to help you? They are all poor, he answered. They gave me this. I have done everything I can. Haven't you got nothing you could sell? I have nothing, I tell you. I have nothing, he cried frantically. Can't you borrow it, then? Don't your store people trust you? Then, as he shook his head, she went on. Listen to me. If you get me, you will be glad of it. I will save your wife and baby for you, and it will not seem like much to you in the end. If you lose them now, how you think you feel then? And here is a lady dot knows her business. I could send you to people in this block, and they would tell you. Madame Haupt was pointing her cooking fork at Jurgis persuasively, but her words were more than he could bear. He flung up his hands with a gesture of despair and turned and started away. It's no use, he exclaimed, but suddenly he heard the woman's voice behind him again. I will make it five dollars for you. She followed behind him, arguing with him. "'You will be foolish not to take such an offer,' she said. 
you won't find nobody go out on a rainy day like dis for less why i have never took a case in my life so cheap as that i couldn't pay mine room rent jurius interrupted her with an oath of rage if i haven't got it he shouted how can i pay it damn it i would pay you if i could but i tell you i haven't got it i haven't got it do you hear me i haven't got it he turned and started away again he was halfway down the stairs before madame haupt could shout to him fate i will go mit you come back he went back into the room again it is not good to think of anybody's suffering she said in a melancholy voice i might as well go mit you for nothing as what you offer me but i will try to help you how far is it three or four blocks from here three or four when so i shall get soaked got in himmel it ought to be worth more one dollar and a quarter and a day like this but you understand now you will pay me de rest of twenty-five dollars soon as soon as i can some time dis month yes within a month said poor jurgis anything hurry up vere is de dollar and a quarter persisted madame haupt relentlessly jurgis put the money on the table and the woman counted it and stowed it away then she wiped her greasy hands again and proceeded to get ready complaining all the time she was so fat that it was painful for her to move and she grunted and gasped at every step she took off her wrapper without even taking the trouble to turn her back to jurgis and put on her corsets and dress then there was a black bonnet which had to be adjusted carefully and an umbrella which was mislaid and a bag full of necessaries which had to be collected from here and there the man being nearly crazy with anxiety in the meantime when they were on the street he kept about four paces ahead of her turning now and then as if he could hurry her on by the force of his desire but madame haupt could only go so far at a step and it took all her attention to get the needed breath for that they came at last to the house and to the group of frightened women in the kitchen it was not over yet jurgis learned he heard ona crying still and meantime madame haupt removed her bonnet and laid it on the mantelpiece and got out of her bag first an old dress and then a saucer of goose grease which she proceeded to rub upon her hands the more cases this goose grease is used in the better luck it brings to the midwife and so she keeps it upon her kitchen mantelpiece or stowed away in a cupboard with her dirty clothes for months and sometimes even for years then they escorted her to the ladder and jurgis heard her give an exclamation of dismay got in himmel what for half you brought me to a place like dis i could not climb dot ladder i could not get through a trap-door i will not try it why i might kill myself already what sort of place is dot for a woman to bear a child in up in a garret mit only a ladder to it you ought to be ashamed of yourselves jurgis stood in the doorway and listened to her scolding half drowning out the horrible moans and screams of ona at last anile succeeded in pacifying her and she essayed the ascent then however she had to be stopped while the old woman cautioned her about the floor of the garret they had no real floor they had laid old boards in one part to make a place for the family to live 
It was all right and safe there, but the other part of the garret had only the joists of the floor and the lath and plaster of the ceiling below, and if one stepped on this there would be a catastrophe. As it was half dark up above, perhaps one of the others had best go up first with a candle. Then there were more outcries and threatening, until at last Jurgis had a vision of a pair of elephantine legs disappearing through the trap-door, and felt the house shake as Madame Haupt started to walk. Then suddenly Adelaide came to him and took him by the arm. "'Now,' she said, "'you go away. Do as I tell you. You have done all you can, and you are only in the way. Go away and stay away.' "'But where shall I go?' Jurgis asked helplessly. "'I don't know where,' she answered. "'Go on the street if there is no other place. Only go, and stay all night. In the end she and Maria pushed him out the door and shut it behind him. It was just about sundown that it was turning cold, the rain had changed to snow, and the slush was freezing. Jurgis shivered in his thin clothing and put his hands into his pockets and started away. He had not eaten since morning, and he felt weak and ill. With a sudden throb of hope he recollected he was only a few blocks from the saloon where he had been wont to eat his dinner. They might have mercy on him there, or he might meet a friend. He set out for the place as fast as he could walk. "'Hello, Jack,' said the saloon-keeper when he entered. They call all foreigners and unskilled men Jack in Packingtown. "'Where have you been?' Jurgis went straight to the bar. "'I've been in jail,' he said, "'and I've just got out. I walked home all the way, and I've not a cent and had nothing to eat since this morning, and I've lost my home, and my wife's ill, and I'm done up.' The saloon-keeper gazed at him with his haggard white face and his blue trembling lips. Then he pushed a big bottle toward him. "'Fill her up,' he said. Jurgis could hardly hold the bottle, his hands shook so. "'Don't be afraid,' said the saloon-keeper. "'Fill her up.' So Jurgis drank a large glass of whiskey, and then turned to the lunch-counter, in obedience to the other's suggestion. He ate all he dared, stuffing it in as fast as he could, and then, after trying to speak his gratitude, he went and sat down by the big red stove in the middle of the room. It was too good to last, however, like all things in this hard world. His soaked clothing began to steam, and the horrible stench of fertilizer to fill the room. In an hour or so the packing-houses would be closing, and the men coming in from their work, and they would not come into a place that smelt of Jurgis. Also it was Saturday night, and in a couple of hours would come a violin and a coronet, and in the rear of the saloon the families of the neighborhood would dance and feast upon Wienerwurst and Lager until two or three o'clock in the morning. The saloon-keeper coughed once or twice and then remarked, "'Say, Jack, I'm afraid you'll have to quit.' He was used to the sight of human wrecks, this saloon-keeper. He fired dozens of them every night, just as haggard and cold and forlorn as this one. But they were all men who had given up and been counted out, while Jurgis was still in the fight and had reminders of decency about him. 
As he got up meekly, the other reflected that he had always been a steady man, and might soon be a good customer again. "'You've been up against it, I see,' he said. "'Come this way.' In the rear of the saloon were the cellar stairs. There was a door above and another below, both safely padlocked, making the stairs an admirable place to stow away a customer who might still chance to have money, or a political light whom it was not advisable to kick out of doors. So Jurgis spent the night. The whiskey had only half warmed him, and he could not sleep, exhausted as he was. He would nod forward and then start up, shivering with the cold, and begin to remember again. Hour after hour passed, until he could only persuade himself that it was not morning by the sounds of music and laughter and singing that were to be heard from the room. When at last these ceased he expected that he would be turned out into the street. As this did not happen he fell to wondering whether the man had forgotten him. In the end, when the silence and suspense were no longer to be borne, he got up and hammered on the door, and the proprietor came yawning and rubbing his eyes. He was keeping open all night and dozing between customers. "'I want to go home,' Jurgis said. I'm worried about my wife. I can't wait any longer. Why the hell didn't you say so before, said the man. I thought you didn't have any home to go to. Jurgis went outside. It was four o'clock in the morning, and as black as night. There were three or four inches of fresh snow on the ground, and the flakes were falling thick and fast. He turned toward Anilay's and started at a run. There was a light burning in the kitchen window, and the blinds were drawn. The door was unlocked, and Jurgis rushed in. Anile, Maria, and the rest of the women were huddled about the stove, exactly as before. With them were several newcomers, Jurgis noticed. Also he noticed that the house was silent. Well, he said. No one answered him. They sat staring at him with their pale faces. He cried again, Well? And then, by the light of the smoky lamp, he saw Maria, who sat nearest him, shaking her head slowly. Not yet, she said, and Jurgis gave a cry of dismay. Not yet! Again Maria's head shook. The poor fellow stood dumbfounded. I don't hear her, he gasped. She's been quiet a long time, replied the other. There was another pause broken suddenly by a voice from the attic. "'Hello there!' Several of the women ran into the next room, while Maria sprang toward Jurgis. "'Wait here!' she cried, and the two stood, pale and trembling, listening. In a few moments it became clear that Madame Haupt was engaged in descending the ladder, scolding and exhorting again, while the ladder creaked in protest. In a moment or two she reached the ground, angry and breathless, and they heard her coming into the room. Jurgis gave one glance at her and then turned white and reeled. She had her jacket off, like one of the workers on the killing beds. Her hands and arms were smeared with blood, and blood was splashed upon her clothing and her face. She was breathing hard and gazing about her. No one made a sound. "'I have done my best,' she began suddenly. I can do nothing more. There is no use to try. 
Again there was silence. "'It ain't my fault,' she said. "'You had ought to have had a doctor, who not waited so long. It was too late already when I come.' Once more there was death-like stillness. Maria was clutching Jurgis with all the power of her one well-arm. Then suddenly Madame Haupt turned to Annele. "'You have not got something to drink, eh?' she queried. "'Some brandy?' Annele shook her head. "'Herr Gott!' exclaimed Madame Haupt. "'Such people! Perhaps you will give me something to eat, then. I have had nothing since yesterday morning, and I have worked myself near to death here. If I could have known it was like this, I would never have come for such money as you give me.' At this moment she chanced to look round, and saw Jurgis. She shook her finger at him. "'You understand me?' she said. You pays me dot money just the same. It is not my fault that you send for me so late that I can't help your wife. It is not my fault if der baby comes mit one arm first so that I can't save it. I have tried all night, when in that place where it is not fit for dogs to be born, when mit nothing to eat only what I brings in mine own pockets. Here Madame Haupt paused for a moment to get her breath and Maria, seeing the beads of sweat on Jurgis' forehead and feeling the quivering of his frame, broke out in a low voice, "'How is Ona?' "'How is she?' echoed Madame Haupt. "'How do you think she can be when you leave her to kill herself so? I told them that when they sent for the priest. She is young, when she might have got over it, when been well, when strong. If she had been treated right, she fight hard, that girl. She is not yet quite dead.' and Jurgis gave a frantic scream. "'Dead?' "'She will die, of course,' said the other angrily. "'Their baby is dead now.' The garret was lighted by a candle, stuck upon a board. It had almost burned itself out, and was sputtering and smoking as Jurgis rushed up the ladder. He could make out dimly in one corner a pallet of rags and old blankets spread upon the floor. At the foot of it was a crucifix, and near it a priest muttering a prayer. In a far corner crouched Elzbieta, moaning and wailing. Upon the pallet lay Ona. She was covered with a blanket, but he could see her shoulders and one arm lying bare. She was so shrunken he would scarcely have known her. She was all but a skeleton, and as white as a piece of chalk. Her eyelids were closed and she lay still as death. He staggered toward her and fell upon his knees with a cry of anguish. "'Ona! Ona!' She did not stir. He caught her hand in his and began to clasp it frantically, calling, "'Look at me! Answer me! It is Jurgis come back! Don't you hear me?' There was the faintest quivering of the eyelids, and he called again in frenzy, Ona! Ona! Then suddenly her eyes opened one instant. One instant she looked at him. There was a flash of recognition between them. He saw her afar off as through a dim vista, standing forlorn. He stretched out his arms to her. He called her in wild despair. A fearful yearning surged up in him, hunger for her that was agony, desire that was a new being born within him, tearing his heart-strings, torturing him. But it was all in vain. 
she faded from him. She slipped back and was gone. And a wail of anguish burst from him. Great sobs shook all his frame, and hot tears ran down his cheeks and fell upon her. He clutched her hands. He shook her. He caught her in his arms and pressed her to him. But she lay cold and still. She was gone. She was gone. The word rang through him like the sound of a bell, echoing in the far depths of him, making forgotten chords to vibrate, old shadowy fears to stir, fears of the dark, fears of the void, fears of annihilation. She was dead. She was dead. He would never see her again, never hear her again. An icy horror of loneliness seized him. He saw himself standing apart and watching all the world fade away from him, a world of shadows, of fickle dreams. He was like a little child in his fright and grief. He called and called and got no answer, and his cries of despair echoed through the house, making the women downstairs draw nearer to each other in fear. He was inconsolable beside himself. The priest came and laid his hand upon his shoulder and whispered to him, but he heard not a sound. He was gone away himself, stumbling through the shadows and groping after the soul that had fled. So he lay. The gray dawn came up and crept into the attic. The priest left, the women left, and he was alone with the still white figure quieter now, but moaning and shuddering, wrestling with the grisly fiend. Now and then he would raise himself and stare at the white mask before him, then hide his eyes because he could not bear it. Dead. Dead. And she was only a girl. She was barely eighteen. Her life had hardly begun, and here she lay, murdered, mangled, tortured to death. It was morning when he rose up and came down into the kitchen, haggard and ashen gray, reeling and dazed. More of the neighbors had come in, and they stared at him in silence as he sank down upon a chair by the table and buried his face in his arms. A few minutes later the door opened, a blast of cold and snow rushed in, and behind it little Kotrina breathless from running and blue with the cold. "'I'm home again!' she exclaimed. "'I could hardly—' And then, seeing Jurgis, she stopped with an exclamation. Looking from one to another, she saw that something had happened, and she asked, in a lower voice, "'What's the matter?' Before anyone could reply, Jurgis started up. He went toward her, walking unsteadily. "'Where have you been?' he demanded. "'Selling papers with the boys,' she said. "'The snow!' "'Have you any money?' he demanded. "'Yes. How much?' "'Nearly three dollars, Jurgis.' "'Give it to me.' Kotrina, frightened by his manner, glanced at the others. "'Give it to me!' he commanded again, and she put her hand into her pocket and pulled out a lump of coins tied in a bit of rag. Jurgis took it without a word, and went out of the door and down the street. 
Three doors away was a saloon. Whiskey, he said as he entered, and as the man pushed him some, he tore at the rag with his teeth and pulled out half a dollar. How much is this bottle, he said. I want to get drunk. End of chapter 19 Recording by Tom Weiss Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.